going to start by uh, reading this passage in 2 Corinthians uh, 9, starting at verse 6. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all times, all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourself, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. This is a significant moment in the life of our church. And we're praying a lot this week about how we can respond to what we sense God is calling us to in, in how we pray, in how we serve, and in our giving. And it's an exciting time. It's been an exciting seven months over the last few months, seeing all the things that God is doing. But it's also been, even in the last seven days, so exciting to see people come to faith in Jesus, to hear the stories of people being equipped to follow Jesus and transform the context where we've each been placed. But first, because I'm speaking on a gift day, I, I think it's important to uh, start by saying I haven't always been as excited about gift days as I am today. And I've felt at times like you might be feeling today, which is like, what are the odds? <laughs> I came on a gift day. Um, I wasn't anticipating that, you know. And um, you hear a figure, and it sounds like a lot, and you think, mm, how's that going to go? And uh, I don't know where you grew up, but in the area I grew up, there wasn't a lot of money. And I was quite conscious of that growing up. And if you've ever experienced that, you never forget that feeling, actually. So when I started earning money, I was pretty sure that the money I was earning was my money. I'd worked hard for it. I'd earned it. Uh, it was mine. Uh, and I didn't think it was any of the church's business, frankly, what I did with my money. I thought if I needed financial advice, I'd go to an accountant, not a pastor. And, uh, and then one day, our our pastor in East London um, stood up and he announced a seven-week sermon series on money. I mean, and I was sitting and I was thinking, this is crazy. Like, this is ridiculous. I was so frustrated. Like, I didn't think money was that important. I was pretty sure I didn't have an issue with it. Pretty sure no one else had an issue with it. And I was so frustrated. I just thought this is a complete waste of time. But, you know, I was completely and utterly wrong. Do you know there are over 500 verses in the Bible about faith, and faith is central to all we are as the church. So over 500 verses in the Bible about prayer, and that is obviously the foundation of all we do. But do you know how many verses there are in the Bible about money and possessions? Over 2,350. Jesus talked about money a lot. 
16 of the 38 parables, the, the stories he tells to communicate deep truths about who God is and what he's done are about how we approach money and possessions and the significance of that. And at the time, I didn't realize it, but I desperately, desperately needed God's wisdom in this area. I was seeing and hearing literally hundreds of messages a day in advertising and in different contexts. And, and people, you know, kind of communicating what I should do in terms of possessions, how I should use my finances. I was being shaped by the culture. I was being shaped by the values of my colleagues and my workplaces. And money had just got a grip on my heart. And I suddenly realized, why wouldn't Jesus' teaching on this area be every bit as liberating, every bit as life-transforming, every bit as freeing and compelling as his teaching in every other area. And it transformed my life in really significant ways. So we see in this passage, firstly, how we increase our love. Why does God care so much about money and possessions? It's not because he thinks money is the most important thing. It's because he cares about you. And he knows that your attitude to money is one of the most significant things about you. Money is intertwined with every aspect of our lives. It, it, it's one of the most revealing things about you. Because your money, your attitude to money reveals your passions, it reveals your priorities, it reveals your hopes, it reveals your fears, it even reveals your loves. And because God loves you, the passage tells us he has given you an indescribable gift. Not just a present, but a person. The person of Jesus Christ, sent for you, given for you made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, suffered and died and rose again for you. He literally took our sin on his shoulders and paid the price to win us for God. And when you think of God giving the gift of Jesus, it's really easy to be complacent about that. I spent some time yesterday just thinking, you know, where would I be but for the gift of Jesus Christ? What would my life look like today but for the gift of Jesus Christ? Because he found me when I was lost. He saved me when I was in great danger. He comforted me when I was distressed and he has guided me when I've been confused and not known which way to turn. He has rescued me and redeemed me and restored me. He is an indescribable gift. Paul says in Romans, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all, how will he not also give us all things? To understand this area, we need to remind ourselves, remind our hearts that every good thing in our lives is a gift from God. Yes, you worked hard. Yes, you've used your skills. Yes, you've used your connections. Yes, you've used the opportunities that have come your way. But who gave those things to you? Who opened the doors for you? Who blessed you with ideas and creativity and insight and wisdom and connections? Who sustained you in your successes and kept you from failing when you stumbled? Who held you when things were tough? Sometimes think, I didn't even pick the century or the continent in which I was born. I sometimes think, oh, I'm a self-made person. There's no such thing as a self-made person. It's all gift. 
And the key question in life is, what will you do with the assets and the skills and the gifts that have been entrusted to you for a relatively short period of time? How do you respond to the remarkable gifts you have been given? When I was at uni, uh, I met a beautiful young woman called uh, Beth, and she was slightly out of my league, uh, still is, and um, she was beautiful, she was bright, she was intelligent, and we started going out, and uh, it was amazing, but then uh, about four months after we started going out, she gave me a card, and I opened up this card, and it had inside it uh, three words which I hadn't anticipated, which I wasn't expecting, and if I'm entirely honest, shocked me and scared me to my very core. They were, I love you. Not love from Beth, not lots of love, Beth, I love you. Now that there is a serious situation because (laughs) when someone says, I love you, it matters how you respond. Like if someone says, I love you, you can't just say, thanks. Like it, it doesn't work like that. You can't just say, that's really nice. Um, what a nice thing to say. It kind of invites a reciprocal response. It's very awkward otherwise. And I was thinking, what do I do? I don't know what to do. And you know, looking back now, I guess I might have had um, a little bit of a fear of commitment, which is an unusual thing for a 20-year-old guy. Uh, but... <laughs> But I really didn't know how to respond. And um, about the same time, we went to an art gallery. And, you know, I hadn't been to an art gallery before. And so I was just trying to, you know, look intelligent and look cultured and, and walk through this art gallery of Beth, trying to impress her. And then we came to some paintings where, I don't know if you've experienced this, you could buy the painting. And, um, and there was one painting that I thought was beautiful. And uh, I looked at it, and I thought, that's a beautiful painting. And then I realized it was one you could buy. I looked forward, and I said to Beth, I said, I oh, you know, I, I might get that painting. And then I looked at the little label at the side of it, and it was more money than I had ever anticipated spending on any possession. I was so shocked. It was more money than I had in my bank account, than probably my family had in their bank accounts, um, that, that I could have got on an overdraft. And I kind of looked at it. And you know how when you're in a luxury shop, and you look at something, and it shocks you because it's so expensive, but you don't want the shop to know that you're poor. Like, so you kind of go, oh, that's interesting. I'm surprised it's so cheap. You know, and you kind of take a step back. So I kind of did that, and I said, oh, it's okay, but you know. Anyway, and I, I just walked off. And I remember thinking, you know, one day, if I'm really successful in life, if I, if I nail it in life, I hope I'll be able to have enough money to be able to buy a painting like that. It's a beautiful painting. I managed to find a, a photo of it. Um, here it is, there's a painting. And, uh, and anyway, I went back, I didn't think about it again, and um, uh, didn't think much about it. And then um, uh, a few, thanks so much, and then a few uh, weeks later, I came back actually to my rooms in college, and there was a parcel there waiting for me outside the door. And to uh, my astonishment, I opened this parcel, and inside was this painting. And uh, it was a gift from Beth. And I looked at it, and my first thought was, did she steal it? (laughs) Because I'd had some girlfriends where, you know, that wasn't, you know, that was... (laughs) But of course she hadn't. She had bought it as a gift for me. And I was completely and utterly blown away. No one had ever bought me a gift like this. It wasn't to say Beth was rich, but she'd used um, quite a lot of her income, quite a lot of her savings to buy me this extraordinary gift. And as I looked at it, I thought... She does love me. And it's one thing seeing it in a card. It's another thing seeing the indisputable proof. And as I looked at this valuable gift, I thought, maybe I do love 
her. Um, <laughs> because her gift changed the way I felt. God has given us an indescribable gift in Jesus. Indescribable. And when you see that, when you're captivated by Jesus, when you realize what he's done for you, it changes how you feel. You, you want to respond to him in love. I mean, Jesus says where your treasure is, your heart is. Jesus wants to know he has your heart. God loves a cheerful giver because God is a cheerful giver. And I've, in many times in my life, I've loved singing songs. I've loved doing things like that. You know, it's okay to read my Bible. I found it much harder to give. You know, I would have said God was the most important person in my life, but my bank statement told a different story. And if you want to know what you really value, your bank statement will tell you it doesn't lie. And I was kind of placing my identity and my security in my finances, but I needed to reframe it and see whose resource it really is in light of the love God has shown. That's how you increase your love. But then also we want to invest our seed. You know, to, to give is to sow, Paul says here. And every seed you sow has huge potential with it. Every seed has within it the potential of life and the potential of multiplication and the potential to have a huge impact in the lives of people you might not even meet in your lifetime. Because when you sow a seed... It grows and it establishes life and it multiplies and then bears more fruit and then bears more seed into the lives of others. When you sow a single seed, you're investing into a chain reaction that can have impacts which you could not conceive this side of eternity. Some of you may be thinking, what's the rate of return? What's the investment? And this passage is very simple and very powerful. In the same way, you sow, you reap. So if you sow a little bit, um, you get a little bit, and if you sow a lot, sorry, um, you get a lot. And it's very simple, really, because what God wants is seed to be sown. So when he sees how you sow, he knows he can trust you with resource. God gives you the resource, the seed capital in the first place. And seed is there to be sown. And when it's sown, it multiplies and has a huge impact and impacts the kingdom. You know, 30, 50, 100 fold. And sometimes people have this grace, you know, they, they kind of earn a lot so they can give a lot. But it starts in the little things. J.D. Rockefeller said he would never have given out of his first million if he hadn't given out of his first paycheck, which was just a few dollars. And people get in a bit of muddle in this area. You know, it's given, you know, you'll reap generously and um, God will give you everything you need in every way. But... but but Paul doesn't say if you give, then you'll become a millionaire. It doesn't mean that. And when I think about this, I think about my friend in East London. He was born and bred in Tower Hamlets. Big guy, knew how to handle himself, quite dangerous. And he had a really hard life and become addicted to drugs. And he would say he'd tried every single drug just looking for a solution. And he hadn't found it. And one night he was completely high on a cocktail of drugs. And it was like the Holy Spirit broke into his life. And he suddenly thought in the middle of the night as he was high, he suddenly said, Jesus, if you're real, I need you. Would you come into my life? And Jesus came into his life right there and then. He woke up next morning, never touched drugs again, and became a Christian. 
There are easy ways to become a Christian. You don't have to become high. If you're here for the first time, that isn't something we, you have to do, but that's what happened to him. And, um, and, and, and so he, he kind of became a Christian. Then his girlfriend became a Christian. They're long-term partners. They decided to get married. So he saved up a few thousand pounds for the wedding. And then one morning he woke up and he just felt the Holy Spirit prompting him to give this money he had saved up for his wedding to the church. And so he did straight away. And then he went home and told his fiance. And as you can imagine, they had one of those awkward conversations that couples have every now and again. So he was in a bit of a trouble, bit of a fix. And um, he was just saying, God, I really need your help now. So he was riding home from work on a motorbike saying, God, I need your help, need your help. And suddenly he saw an armed robbery taking place right in front of him. Two armed robbers came out of the bank. Uh, They jumped in the getaway car and drove off. And he just thought, I'm not having that. So he kind of revved up his motorbike and he went after them and started chasing them through the streets. They took a wrong turn. They came into a dead end. He drove his motorbike up, parked it behind them so they couldn't get out, got off his motorbike, walked around, knocked on the window. They kind of wound it down. He said, give me the money. Now, this is quite difficult if you're an armed robber because you don't plan on getting robbed on the way back from doing an armed robbery. And, um, and they were so shocked, they just kind of handed all this money over to him. He grabbed it, got back on his bike, and drove off. Amazing. <laughs> Don't worry, the story doesn't end there. And, um, and then he rode his motorbike back to the bank, walked past all the armed police who were scattered around, and the police officers in the bank went right up to the manager, lumped the money down, and said, there you are, there's your money, I went and got it for you. And the bank manager was so overwhelmed, he gave him a reward which paid for his entire wedding. It's extraordinary. Now, my friend um, has seen God work in his life in extraordinary ways. He's seen people come to faith. He's seen people healed of addiction. He's seen people set free from all sorts of things. He's never going to be hugely wealthy in the world's eyes. But he can tell the story of how God has provided as he has given generously. And he can see God's, you know, he's been blessed abundantly so he can abound and overflow in every good work. Just like Paul says in this passage. He's been made rich in every way, relationally, spiritually. He knows God's love. He knows the intimacy of relationship with Jesus. He knows the opportunities that have flown from his obedience. He's known God at work in his life. When you give to God, life multiplies. But it's still hard. This whole letter, Paul, this part of the letter, Paul is pleading with the church at Corinth. He's desperate for them to know that this is best for them and best for God. Because when your eternal perspective shapes your earthly decisions, you get the best of both worlds. And I found it difficult. I found that there's still obstacles. Firstly, I, I, would, I would say, well, you know, it's so difficult. I'm not sure it's the right time. You know, maybe next month or next year or maybe when I'm earning a bit more or maybe when I'm earning a bit more. I said that to myself for months and years. But I was kidding myself. If, if I wasn't faithful with a little, why would I have been faithful for a lot? You know, I used to say, well, it's, it, how much is too complicated? And that was a genuine question. You know, I'd heard about tithing, and tithing is a really helpful Old Testament principle, giving the first 10% of your income to God. Jesus refers to tithing and approves of it, but he wants us to give all of our lives to him. And sometimes I've found tithing really hard, and it's been a real stretch. And sometimes I've been earning so much, I've tithed, I haven't even noticed it come out of my bank account. And and I could have done more, and I've done more. But I found if I start there, I have freedom to stretch. But if I just leave it vague... I always end up giving less. And then there were times when I, it was too complex. I said to my pastor once, I said, it's far too complex giving. 
I don't even know how to start. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, is it tithing or more than tithing? Is it before or after tax? Is it this calendar year or this financial year? Because that could make a difference. Is it about income or is it capital? So complex. He said, Steve, are you asking what's the minimum you can give and still be a generous giver? I said, yes. (laughs) Thank you. He said, well, Steve, just, just start. Just give something. Just start today. Start to use the muscle, and you'll be surprised about the impact it has, and you'll be surprised what you want to do next. And you know what? He was right. I started giving, and suddenly I wasn't thinking what's the, the basement. I was thinking what's the ceiling? What can I stretch to? I really love doing it. And then I'd say, why the church? Well, do you know, it's only us and a very few other people who are ever going to give here. And, and God kind of birthed in me this love for the church. I saw the beauty and the potential of the church, that the church is God's appointed agent for the transformation of the world. There is no plan B. And then to be part of this extraordinary church, seeing people from across the globe come to faith in Jesus Christ, right here, right now, to be entrusted with ministering here as a congregation together, coming alongside those who have had difficult lives, you know, prison leavers, those coming out of recovery, a remarkable mix of people coming to faith like I've never seen before. Students in 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s and prison leavers and those who have had difficult lives. It's extraordinary. And when I see it, I think, I want to give to things like that. And then there's times I've looked around and I've said to myself, well, I'm not sure my giving will make much difference. Sometimes it's because my capacity to give has been relatively small. And I think, well, even if I stretch, like today we're stretching, Beth and I, I think even if I stretch, is it really going to make a difference? And there's times when my capacity to give has been so disproportionately large, I've thought, well, I I don't want to swamp the church with all my resources and give it a whole new set of problems. But the church does need it. Every person counts. And what's more, you need to know today, your spiritual need to give is far more significant than the church's financial need to receive it. It really makes a difference in your life. Your spiritual need to give is far greater than the church's financial need to receive. Don't miss out. It's like a win-win. When you give resource, it enables the kingdom of God to expand, but it also frees up your heart and enables God to move in your life in a whole new way. And then we see the potential. Paul writes, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. He talks about people praying for you and giving you their hearts and giving thanks to God on your behalf because of what you've invested. So what I love about giving is that you kind of give in faith, trusting God to use it, trusting God to multiply the impact. And I love, it's so exciting to see what's happening at the moment, to see in our children's ministry over 150 children now, investing in them, forging friendships. I think of the potential impact of every one of their lives. That's a long-term investment. We want to see them grow up, understanding God's love for them. We want to put in foundations that will stand the test of time. I think about our youth. I still remember being 16 years old and feeling like I'd been torn in two because my friends wanted me to walk in one way and I knew God wanted me to walk in another. And it was so hard and I felt like a failure most days. But someone gave, said there was a youth pastor who saw God's hand on me when I felt like a fraud and a failure and encouraged me to lead and to give my first talk. And it's so exciting to see our youth work thriving. And we want to invest in it and see our youth raised up to lead in their schools and their colleges. 
You know, when I was a student in this city, I was about 24 hours from losing my faith. I held on by my fingertips. So exciting to see over 200 undergraduates and postgraduates coming to our church, hearing the good news about Jesus, inviting their friends, passionate about discipling each other, and being shaped by Jesus for a life of purpose. Over 50,000 students within a few miles of this church. Think of the potential. You know, I, I look at kind of our 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s. We want to disciple people to live for Jesus in every area of our lives. We really want to invest in that area. Raise people up to lead in their workplaces and their contexts. We want to come alongside those who are struggling who've had difficult lives, who need some extra support, those who are vulnerable, those who are poor, those who are struggling in our community. We want to see every generation and every background come to know Jesus. We probably all have people, friends, families, colleagues, who we would long to know Jesus. And it's so easy to take for granted what we've received. Be complacent about the remarkable things we are seeing. But it matters People's lives are at stake. People's eternal destinies are at stake. You know, we could be placed anywhere, but God has positioned us here. Sometimes it feels random. Let me tell you, it's not random. There's a purpose to your presence here. He's placed you right here, this place with potential to shape lives and the trajectory of lives. At Global Crossroads, a place where culture is formed. And there's this opportunity to sow into the lives of hundreds of people. People who might have great influence in the world's eyes. People who the world will never hear about, but we know they have great influence. People like Michael, who we baptized last week, who has come to faith and is leading others to faith in our community around here. I love the idea that we can give and trust God to multiply. Someone said to me, someone said to me, who pays for the food on Alpha? I said, I've never been asked that before. Why did you ask that? They said, well, I, I came to faith on Alpha, and I just, I just thought someone paid for my first meal here. And it made me feel really welcome. I, I don't know who that is. And I was like, I don't know who that is. But someone did. Just think. Giving and trusting God to multiply. Giving and knowing that it's bearing a harvest of righteousness. Giving and knowing there's a chain reaction going across the generation and through the generation. And people you might never meet this side of eternity will be impacted by your faithfulness and your generosity. And in years to come, they might turn and say, oh, you were part of that. Let me tell you my story. You know, one day on the final day, lots of things that loom so large today will fade like shadows at daybreak. On that day, relatively few things will remain. Relatively few things will matter. And we can invest in those things. We can step in. And I, there was a moment when that changed for me. When I thought, you know, I don't want to lean out anymore. I want to lean in. I don't want to ask what the minimum is anymore. I want to see how far I can stretch. Because I don't want the church to take a step back, not in my generation, not in my watch. I want us to see people encounter Jesus. I want us to see people equipped to follow him. I want to see people transforming their communities and their workplaces and their contexts. And see the name of Jesus lifted high in our church, in our city, in our nation. In Jesus' name, amen.